My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Movie podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and it is time for us to end our study of the book of Romans. Guys, we've gotten to two entire books of the Bible in a fairly short amount of time. And I'm looking forward to what the future has in store for us as we go to Genesis, go through the whole Pentateuch, and then see where we go from there. I've laid out the plans before. I think I'm going to stick to them. But if that changes, I'll let you all know. So today we're going to be heading into Romans chapter 15 and 16 starting in verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Right at the start here, we see it is the responsibility of those who are stronger in the faith to look after those who are weaker. Not in order for to show our moral superiority over them or to just mold them into little mini-me's of ourselves, but instead is to show them how things should be done when one has been living their lives focused on God for as long as we have. Paul uses the perfect example of Jesus as someone who is objectively the strongest in the faith to show us that Jesus never lorded his position as the stronger leader over his followers but instead showed them all patience, love, and mercy while still being himself, while still being Lord. He didn't like make them feel lesser simply because of the fact that he was better than them. No, he would make them feel lesser when they screwed up, and then he would encourage them when they got back right on track. Like, look, we should emulate him and do the same. We're never going to be Jesus. It's impossible. Like, there's not been a single person who's ever done it except for him. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for it and to have others strive for it as well, to follow our example of following him. If you feel right now that you're, you're the weaker follower that Paul is talking about here, that's okay. Don't fret. It's all good. There's always room for growth. And if Jesus could handle his followers who denied him multiple times over, then of course he can easily help you grow as well. Because guess what? Those followers who denied him that were still his, they came back and you're going to come back too. Just like I've come back, it's going to happen to us at some point in time. We all have to start somewhere. You know, that may be a cliche to hear, but it's a cliche for a reason. We can't begin something without starting. This journey, we have to take those first steps moving on from where we were to where we need to be now. You're going to stumble. You're going to screw up and you're going to make bad calls. But guess what? You're not alone. Every single mature Christian that you think they're so much better than you, They did most, if not all of the same things while they were growing that you're doing right now. It's going to get better. You're going to get better at this. Will it be screw-ups along the way, even after getting better? Of course, because we're only human. But that's okay. God's got this, and we've got to realize that. Paul also makes a good point here, and that the scriptures were written to embolden us all with faith and hope so we could see the fullness of God's love for humanity since the creation of the earth 
to the then present day of that time, you know, the this would be like uh, like 57 AD, if I remember correctly. And then knowing that he would continue from that point in time to continue doing what he's been doing into the future. He's going to keep loving us even now without a proper understanding of the history of the world and God's love for us within that plan of his. It can be immensely difficult to see what he desires for us and if he really does love us. That's one of the main reasons I'm going back to Genesis once this episode is over, so that we can see the totality of God's love and provision to us all from the very start and creation of this world, from the fall of man, to giving them a promise about Jesus coming to save us all. And as time goes on, like seeing that in process, the Old Testament is a beautiful place to see God's love for people and wanting to reconcile as many who will say yes to him as possible. Next up, we'll be in verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you all with joy. Excuse me, fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. One of my favorite film tr- franchises of all time, minus a couple duds uh, more recently that came out in the film way, is, is the Star Wars franchise. The fourth movie, which is the first movie, but also not the first movie, is entitled A New Hope. Star Wars, when it's written well, is built around that concept of finding hope. You have Luke being our Jedi to stop Darth Vader, stop the Death Star, blow it up. And even in Empire Strikes Back, you know, he's lost his arm, but there's still hope for a rebellion to win. There's still a hope for them to find Han Solo. Then Return of the Jedi is this amazing thing. There is hope. Because they've beaten the empire, and now there's a chance for people to start making decisions for themselves again, for a rebellion to win, for a new government to come up and replace the old and do better than what happened before. There is hope there, even in Revenge of the Sith, where, you know, uh, the Palpatine, excuse me, Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader have taken over the entire galaxy. There is hope left behind because Obi-Wan is still there, watching over Luke. Yoda is still there, meditating in his own, and Leia has been taken away. By loving parents, there is hope there. That is why I love those films, because they symbolize hope as opposed, I know there's some of you already rolling your eyes out there, <laughs> to the sequel trilogy where I feel no hope because the characters are poorly written. There's, oh, we're just doing this all over again. Ray's had no real training, and she's just good because the writers say she's good versus being an actual character. Uh, it's, I'm not filled with hope. But like, you go to scripture here. I am filled with hope because I see God's promises and how they've been fulfilled. And yet there's never been a single promise he hasn't fulfilled um, except for the ones he hasn't done yet because they haven't happened yet. He started first with the Jews to show how he keeps his promises to them. And then he extended his love to the Gentiles to likewise keep his promise that his love would be given to everyone who came to him regardless of race. There are plenty of other verses Paul could have quoted there, but he went to enough to get his point across. The gospel is for the Jews and Gentiles alike. 
That is something to have hope in. And he uses that to show that this isn't like some unexplained phenomena or like God suddenly changed his mind and said, well, I'm turning my back on the Jewish people. No, this has been foreshadowed over centuries of time by God through his prophets, through the people chronicling his works. It's not a mistake. It's not him deciding, well, I mean, I guess I'll let him in. No, it instead shows us that our introduction into the family was always planned for and encouraged by him as he wanted to restore those who would say yes to him to his holy presence. That is something to have hope in. And in verse 13, we have one of the most positive directives that we've ever been given in Scripture. Every single one of us wants to be filled with joy and peace, and those of us who have a relationship with God have been promised all these things and more. We should then go and live in light of this so that a world that has no hope can have someone to hope in. Like, I want there are plenty of terrible movies out there, in my opinion, that end on downer endings and are not deserved, or they're just cruel. Like, I, I despise Chinatown. There's no hope at the end of that film. Like, you forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Well, forget it because, well, we can't change anything is what that movie is really saying. You'll have people argue otherwise, but that's how I take it. As opposed to something like, look, you can topple that empire. You can find hope again, restore an order that was built to preserve peace in the galaxy. Like You can fight against the world right here and now that is full of sin and hates you because you are not in it. And you despise the sin and evil while loving the people who are mired in evil and don't understand why they need a God. There is hope there because God has done so much and we can do that and understand that by looking not only in our own lives, but through the promises he made in Scripture. And that's why Paul brings that up here. And we'll move on from there to verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. At the very beginning of this, of these passages, we see Christians need to have leaders who desire to shepherd and watch over their flocks. Paul wasn't the pastor of the church in Rome, but he was someone who deeply cared for them and wished them the best, hence why he wrote to them. You don't do that if you don't care about those people. You don't do that unless you have, uh, for the evil side of things, you don't do that unless you have an agenda or you want to control over them. But no, Paul clearly through this letter wants to help, help them and aid them. I combined help and aid. <laughs> and for those Christians who are called to lead, regardless of where in the church and out of it they are called to do so, we must learn from his example and offer that same shepherding to those under our care. Once again, Paul wasn't the pastor in charge of the Roman church. He wasn't the pastor in charge of Corinth or Ephesus or any of these places, but he was still a spiritual leader 
who wanted to make sure everyone was cared for and able to do their jobs effectively and protected from a world that doesn't want them to be protected. And here we also see him. He's not boasting of his work that he's done because he himself is just so great. But rather, Paul is just a conduit that Jesus has chosen to use for his purposes. And that is something to be praised for the good work done for Jesus. Paul's goal was to go to where no one knew Jesus's name so that he might not upend the work of another faithful Christian because people might look at him rather than the one who introduced it to them in the first place. And it's very easy to see why. Paul has that very, what's the word I'm looking for? He's got a charisma about him that as a leader, you go, man, if I could just be like that, I should listen to this guy. And there's nothing bad about that. Like, if it's used correctly, and Paul has recognized this about himself, and he doesn't go to different churches to take leadership away from someone because he is afraid, and rightly so to an extent, that people will look to him rather than, say, Apollos or Peter or someone else, like, that shouldn't be happening. So he doesn't want to do that. So instead, he goes to places where they don't have an established church. And this doesn't mean he would never go to a church started by someone else. But he preferred to go where more souls needed guidance to the truth. And we'll finish this part of the chapter in 22, blah, 22 through 23. He's got, God dang, 33. <laughs> I know how to speak. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered it to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service in Jerusalem that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul here speaks of his plan to visit the Christians in Rome because he was planning on going to Spain and he wanted to see them amidst that journey. And this is not in direct contradiction to his earlier claims to not go where someone else had planted, but instead it's him intending to stop by and put faces to names that he has only heard of through letters and to have a safe haven to rest in while he is on a large and arduous journey to the other side of the Roman Empire. I mean, outside of Britain, you can't go much further west for the Roman Empire. So this is perfect for him to have this opportunity to meet these people that he's only heard about, he's never seen before, and then not stay there for a long time, but enjoy their company, leave while he's on his journey elsewhere. However, we have no records of Paul actually reaching Spain. And in fact, this seems to have been hindered by his arrest in Jerusalem soon after writing this letter. It is not impossible that after his freedom in the years to come, that he could have gone there, but we have very little proof that he was able to do what he wanted to. Now, 
why do why is that important to bring up? Why mention it at all? Well, because Paul is just a man. And people oftentimes put him up on a pedestal too much for their own good, just as much as people disregard every single thing thing he's had to say. And we need to recognize that even he made declarations and further statements that didn't come to pass because he's just a man. His heart was most definitely in the right place. Guess what? There were no churches that we're aware of at that point in time in Spain, in that region of the world, the Roman Empire. So what perfect place could there be for someone who wanted to go when no one knew about Jesus and introduce him to them? It would be good, though, for him to visit the Roman Christians and to preach in Spain where no one knew the gospel, but God had different plans. Paul met the Roman Christians while under house arrest. All you have to do is read through the book of Acts to figure out where that goes, and we'll have to get there forever from now. This was most certainly not how he envisioned that happening. I mean, I don't think Paul was thinking, man, I'm going to get in prison. I'm going to meet these people. We're going to have a good time of faithfulness and fellowship. It's like, no, he expected to be traveling, to have his agency about him. And yet God had a different plan in mind. There will be many times in ministry that we will have plans that are good, but will get upended by things outside of our control. You weren't wrong to make those plans more than likely if your heart was in the right place. But this simply means that God had better plans than us, even if we can't see that at the time. Paul wrote countless letters while under imprisonment and ministered to people he never would have met if he'd done what he'd originally intended. God places us where we need to be rather than where we think we need to be. So we need to be ready for when he throws those curveballs at us, and we need to learn to roll with the punches rather than whining about the things we didn't want to do. I mean, just something from my own life right now that I'm kind of bummed about. I I was very interested in a trip that is being planned at the seminary to go to Israel over the summer for a week or so. However, with the recent events, with the invasion of Israel by Hamas, and now Israel setting up to go attack them, and uh, civilians on both sides being killed by indiscriminate gunfire or missile fire and all the evils that are happening there. While at the same time, people trying to defend themselves, people just trying to live their lives that are being uh, attacked by this terrorist organization and abused by the authority that was vested in them as what they believe to be their legitimate government. And they have since uh, stamped on those same people who gave them power and are doing everything in their power not to give the people what they want. Like the Israel-Palestine conflict, we're not going to solve it here. Like, and it's not, obviously I'm very pro-Israel, but I'm not anti-Palestine. And I want those people to be, well, I don't want them to be suffering under the threat of war. I want them to be able to live their full lives away from evil people who would take advantage of them on either side. But to get back to that point, with those recent events, it seems like that's not going to happen, that trip. And I deeply desire to learn more about the nation where the Bible was mostly written around and to see where the heroes and villains of the past once stood and to learn from that history by witnessing it firsthand. That sounds amazing. Like the fact that other people have gotten to do that is if there's such a thing as spiritual jealousy, I have it. I want to do that. But it seems at this point in time, God has different plans for this. So I must submit to him rather than enforcing what I desire. Now that things may change. I really hope they do. I don't want to see anyone slaughtered right now. I don't want anyone hurt right now. I want them to get along. That's not ever going to happen fully, but I still desire it. I want there to be peace in the Middle East. I want there to be peace in Israel and Palestine. But I can't force that simply because I want it. And that plan I mentioned, like 
Yeah, oh no, Christian, your trip got canceled. You're not gonna be able to go. Well, it's not the deepest one or the most heart-wrenching one that you know you compared to others out there, but it is something that I wanted badly. And there are all all of us out there, we have something we want badly. And of course, it's not always going to be like, man, I just really wanted that neighbor to come to faith or blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you just really wanted to go on a trip. Sometimes you just really wanted to be able to have a day to yourself and it doesn't happen. Our goal isn't to compare ourselves with others and the plans that God cancels for them, but to learn how to deal when those plans are destroyed and to still praise his name when they do. God is still sovereign, even in the midst of all this wildness, even in the midst of all this death and devastation. We have to believe that. And to that point, we see here in Romans, Paul asked the believers there to pray for his safe conduct to Jerusalem to deliver aid to the people suffering there. Some might say these prayers weren't answered because he got in prison. But that is a very surface level reading of the events. The prayers of the Christians of Rome protected Paul from death because the Jewish leaders intended for him to die there. But the intervention of the saints in Rome, amongst others who were praying for his safety, their prayers were answered by God, who allowed Paul to be jailed rather than executed then. The plan was for him to go there, deliver aid, and then leave for Spain. Everything I said there is good. It is something he should have been thinking about. But if we only look at that and say, well, he didn't get what he wanted, so he failed, and God failed him, then we have a very small understanding of how God works. God's power was displayed in far mightier ways than Paul had dreamed of to the point where he met leaders, soldiers, and commoners all across the Roman Empire and preached the gospel to them, which never would have happened had he gotten what he wanted. Perhaps it's best to put it this way, through another really good cliche. Man plans, God laughs. And with that, we'll be going into chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Kintria. I should have really practiced that one a little more. Kintria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa, that is Priscilla, that's a shortened form of her name, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epigenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia, that not being Asia, the continent, this Asia, the region of Turkey. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved by Christ. Excuse me, approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis who worked hard, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
Let's start with Phoebe. <laughs> now, the word used in the specific translation for the ESV, they call her at this point in time as servant. Now, you will find other translations out there who refer to her as a deacon or a deaconess. There is much debate, imagine that, over what this word is meant to be and representative to her, because obviously this means a lot if a woman is allowed to be a deacon. But before we get there, as there are points on both sides I want to bring up, let us focus on how Paul talks about her. He praises Phoebe's willingness to give aid to him during his journey as a patron and for her willingness to go far away from home to be with her spiritual brethren in Rome. This is no mean feat, the easy feat. Like you've got to even go from Greece all the way to Rome in the heart of Italy. That is a journey that takes months, depending on how you're doing it. You can get there a little faster, but you got to go a long distance. This isn't like we can just hop on a plane and be from one to the other. It's going to cost you a lot, but you're still going to end up there. This is an effort on her part. This is something she's having to give up her life for a bit just so she can go elsewhere to help deliver the message of Paul, to help deliver the message of Jesus. And that shows a strength of character that we should all desire to follow. Phoebe is someone we should be emulate a lot in our lives. Now, as it concerns whether or not that she was a deacon, I know this is going to surprise some people, but I actually favor that she was. And this means women can be deacons, but never above that station in the church. Now, let's actually look at the Greek here. The word used to describe her as a servant is called diakonos, which Paul has used early in Roman, excuse me, Romans to simply mean servant because it has a dual meaning. Mean deacon, it can mean servant. But the same word is also used by Paul in other letters like the letters to the Philippians and in 1 Timothy to refer specifically to this church office of deacons. So some would argue that since Paul only uses the servant meaning in Romans earlier, that the same applies to her. There's a certain logic to that. There's, it's not unsound reasoning. However, others, like me, would point to how she is treated by Paul's words and his explanations of her actions to show how active she is in a role that very similarly resembles what deacons would be expected to do. Others, rightly so, would say that we don't base doctrine or the roles of men and women in the church simply on one verse alone. That is a very pragmatic and wise way of thinking. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into 1 Timothy 3, but I encourage you all to go read it as it shows the difference between an elder, it may say overseer in your translation, and then the deacon in the church, and that elders are people who are expected to teach and deacons are not. Deacons are there to fulfill a role in the church to look after others, make sure things are running smoothly. Elders are not. They have a very different job. And if deacons are not supposed to teach, well, that would follow with Paul's directive sent by God that women are not to teach over men, yet would still allow for women to be deacons. Now, that is how I come to this. There are plenty of other ways people have interpreted these verses. So I will leave that interpretation up to you to figure that out for yourself. That's where we're at. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Prissa is a shortened form of the name Priscilla, who we see in the book of Acts, her and her husband Aquila, are two of Paul's most trusted friends and allies in his missionary journeys, like uh, even to the point he says they stuck their necks out for him. And that's not easy to do. And they, when, they could easily be jailed and killed. But at that same time, it shows their faithfulness and the true changing love and grace delivered by Christ that can only be done 
if Christ is who he says he is. Not many people are going to do that just because it's the right thing to do. Now, some people are going to do it because it's the right thing to do and because they know what Christ has done for them. So they can stick out their necks for Paul and keep him safe, knowing what would happen if God decides it's your time. And these two are, like I said, some of Paul's most trusted friends and allies. They, as we see through several of the epistles and in the book of Acts, just how faithful they are looking over the flocks, you know, traveling from city to city, making sure everyone's getting along, doing stuff well. They're invaluable. And we, I read a very long list earlier of a bunch of names. You probably tuned them out. And I get it to an extent, but we shouldn't be doing that. I know when people start listing stuff off, my mind kind of wanders and I focus on other things and whatever my undiagnosed mental issues are just doesn't allow me to focus when stuff like that happens. But we should. We need to slow down. These people matter. You know why they matter? Not because they're mentioned in Romans. That's nice. That's a perk. Like their names are preserved for over 2000 years, but they matter because they're gods and they are doing stuff in these verses that made sure the church worked, that made sure the people were cared for. It is so very easy to get bored when we read through a list of names. When we go, uh, we eventually get the first Chronicles and the first however many chapters, like nine or 10, are all a list of genealogies and I'm dying inside reading them off. I shouldn't be letting that do, be focused on that. Those are people who matter. Those are people without them, we wouldn't have the stories we have today of the history that happened of God's faithfulness to the world. And the same is true of these people in the church. Without their faithfulness, the gospel wouldn't have spread as swiftly and lovingly as it did in the first century AD. These people weren't mighty warriors or great statesmen or uh, fine creators of the arts, but they were faithful to God and their faith was rewarded in the end. You know, chances are, uh, none of you listening right now are the next Billy Graham or the next St. Augustine, but you are, if you are his, a child of God working in service to him, and that is what matters. We don't have to be the big names that everyone remembers. What we have to be is who Christ called us to be, and these people were doing what Christ told them to do. You know why I know that? Because if they weren't, Paul would have said it, because he does it in other letters. <laughs> if there's someone who has run away, who has betrayed them, we hear it. it is. For all of history said, they did this, they are not among us. But he didn't. Instead, he praises them for all the goodness for people, like someone who acted like a mother to him. Like, we don't know what happened to Paul's mom. He probably might have, at this point in time, might be dead. Uh, how amazing is it to have a maternal figure in your life looking after your needs that is not even a direct blood relative? There have been plenty of people in my own life. I can go to them in that motherly way, just as much as I can to my own mother. Obviously, mom, a little higher than everyone else. But it's still nice to have that support. Same thing, people who've never had a father. Like, I love my dad. I need my dad. But there are other people who filled that role there. And my dad is an amazing father. They're not perfect. Mom and dad aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination that I brought up before. But they still perform those roles well. And there are people in the church who have done the exact same things, acting as a dad, acting as a mom. That is something people can do, acting as a brother, acting as a sister, like, if friendship is amazing, friendship is a wonderful thing, but have you been brothers and sisters to each other? I have some people that are practically family. And you know what? I'll say they are family because they have been my brother. They have been my sister. We are nowhere close to being related. Doesn't matter because there is one thing that binds us together and that is God and changing that he's done in our hearts. Like even just look at Mary. All we know about her, she has worked hard for you. They, you know what that means? 
he should work harder. She has worked harder than anyone else. If it is special enough for Paul to say that, just look at these people. And remember, that's who we are. We may never get name recognition. Uh, maybe no one ever sings our praises, but that doesn't matter. God knows, and he sees what we do. Next up, uh, 17 through 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now, at the start of this, Paul brings up a point and has had a warning about those who would cause strife in the church. And that warning is just as applicable today as it was then. There are many who would use the blessings of the church to make their name known rather than God's and then twist the pure and holy teachings of God into sinful and heretical passions that dilute the truth. This is why we should care about what we believe and why we can trust in what we believe, because the moment someone can twist the truth or get any of us walking and thinking down the wrong path, evil can spread within the church as it has countless times before. Protestants always love to rag on the Catholics, say, oh, indulgences, oh, the Crusades. You didn't see that happening when we were around. Yeah, sure. It was objectively bad when that happened. But how many times has abuse spread within the church of people abusing their authority, of pastors assaulting people in their con congregation all over the place, of abusing and taking funds away, embezzling, harming the people, spouting false doctrine because they think it's true or because they think it's better that they do that because it makes them look better? Every church, every denomination has been guilty of that at some point in time. There's been someone there who is spreading falseness, and our job is to get rid of it. Our job is to say, oh, this filthy Catholic, Catholic priest, you know what they do with children, when the same exact thing happens within Protestant churches, and we just shuffle them away and say, oh, well, we're not going to punish you. You just go work at this church now instead of bringing it to the police and having charges filed against an evil act that should never be done again. Like, we're no better. There's not a single church out there that doesn't have some bit of controversy behind them. And people always rally against the Crusades. What, how many times have Protestants done the exact same thing, just didn't call it a crusade? It happened to the First Nations people in this world, on the, excuse me, in the New World. It happened to countless people all over the world. Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox Church, Nestorians, Coptics, doesn't matter. You know what? They're all people. And all those churches, all those denominations have allowed evil to come within them and spread false doctrine and to spread false ideas. And our job, as Paul says, is to not allow that. We cannot. Christ cannot abide in the presence of evil. So we need to remove it from ourselves. Anyone who speaks this needs to be kicked out of the church because they are spreading evil. That's not very loving. That's not very nice of you. It doesn't have to be. It's not good for that to be there, so it is better for me to cut that off and say, be gone, you who practice lawlessness. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan, for thou not speakest not the word of God. 
You know, Jesus said that to Peter. <laughs> now, thank God Peter eventually repented, but there are plenty of people out there who've never repented. And Jesus says the exact same thing to them, and we welcome them into the church. That has no place in the church. Get rid of them because they speak not the word of God. They speak instead, look at me. Look at how great I am. Let me do whatever I want. Oh, did God really say that you shouldn't do this sin? Did God really say that you had to be faithful to your wife, that a man couldn't have more than one? Oh, every, they always love that one. Can't imagine why. Paul brings at the end of this message, like, don't you think one of the last things he's going to say is be very important? Of course it is, because we need to stamp this out. There cannot be evil within the church because then the church is not as effective. Excuse me, the church is not as effective as it should be. Test anyone who says anything that contradicts scripture or words it in a way convenient to their own desires. But also take heart in that Paul promises what God has promised in that Satan will be crushed under our feet and the grace of Jesus remains with us throughout everything. That is something we should be mindful of. No matter how many times a false teacher has shown up in any denomination, the faithful have remained. God has eventually weeded them out. Let's also look here briefly at the other Christians that Paul praises here, including the writer of the letter who Paul dictated it to. Every single one of them had their role to play in the history of the church and should be praised just as much as Paul for their faithfulness. It ties together with the ones we mentioned earlier. You know how great it is to have someone who can dictate your words in this time in history? Maybe Paul wasn't able to. He was a very learned man. Maybe something was preventing him from doing it. Or maybe he just wanted, God told him, hey, I want you to let Tertius do this. And guess what? Tertius was faithful. We know Timothy from the rest of Scripture as someone who learned under Paul and became a great pastor, a great leader of the church. All these people, their lives mattered. They were faithful, and we should do the same. And we'll finish up the book of Romans with verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before we get to that, I do need to say some of your Bibles may have a verse 24 in them, but this is not found in all manuscripts that we've recovered. And something that's been on my mind recently, I've been challenged as to why I see these additions at Scripture when they were not in the original letter. And that's something I'm still wrestling with. It's like, there's nothing necessarily wrong. I'll say the verse, it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I mean, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? Sounds pretty dang spiritual. But at the same time, if it wasn't in the original verse, is that line scripture? I don't know. If God chose it to show up there later on and you had an editor come in uh, filled with the spirit and God wanted it to be there, that could very well be true. Or it could be someone who just wanted to put it in there because it felt right. That isn't, that's not scripture. Like I said, I'm still wrestling with this, so I don't have an answer at the moment, but I would be leading you all astray if I pretended it didn't exist simply because I'm having a crisis on how to handle it at the moment. So I want to be open about that. I want to let you know, hey, some Bibles have this, some don't. Here's where I'm standing on it, or here's, I mean, ultimately, I would say at this point in time, if I had to give you an answer, it's not Scripture. It was added by someone else. And we see parts of Mark, and we see parts of John where this happens as well. And when we get to those eventually, I'll have to talk about those too. But more importantly than that, Paul ends his letter to the Roman Christians with further encouragement and love. God's love for us has destroyed the mystery of why we are here 
and that should all make us sing his praises and follow after him, the only one who deserves to be glorified forevermore. Amen. And with that, we are done with the book of Romans. Thank you for sticking it out with me. Oh, this was a lot of fun, a lot of insight gain. Like, you know, can't tell you how many times I've read through this book. I still got new stuff reading through this. And guess what? The next time I read it, it's going to happen again. But next week, we're going back, like I said, to the very beginning. The very beginning of the Bible is going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter one. We're going to be discussing creation. We're discussing who God is, how we can find the Trinity at the very beginning of the Bible. Can't deny it. It's right there. So guys, thank you for listening to this. Please, if you have a chance to leave a five-star review just to help with our ratings on the podcasting platforms out there, if you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me and not spam me, as has been happening recently, at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.